This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. I want you to think back to chemistry class. Not a good thought for me, but maybe for you. You recall you've got those diagrams of molecules, maybe some of those ball and stick models like ticker toys. And in the lab, you see rows of bottles and vials. Perhaps you'll look at peaks on a graph. Well, those experiences all rely in large part on vision, making them less accessible to blind and low-vision people. Scientists, though, are now working to make chemistry more accessible using techniques that include 3D printing that lets students feel the data. Joining me now is Dr. Brian Shaw. He's a professor of biochemistry at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and one of the authors describing the touchy techniques in the journal Science Advances. Welcome to Science Friday. Hey, Ira. Great to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, can, can you describe these tactile prints for me? What what are they like? Well, tactile graphics have been around for a while, but the ones we're developing, yes, they're tactile, but they're also visual. So they're they're universal. They're what artists call lithophanes. So it is a, a tactile graphic that will project whatever you see on the on the video screen as a tactile readout. But the material we make them of it's a translucent, not transparent, but translucent polymer. So if you hold them up to the light, like a room light, they'll start glowing in this sort of picture-perfect fashion. It looks like uh, just what you see on the video screen. So as a sighted person, I can see the data, and then my colleagues with blindness can feel the data, and we can basically sit around a table and talk about the exact same piece of high-resolution data on the same level. And you say high resolution. It has to be high resolution. Well, a lot of the data that we've been printing are, for example, polyacrylamide gels or NMR spectra or mass spectra. So we want the noise in the data. The noise is a very important part of data. We don't want sort of idealized schematic graphs of NMR or mass spectra or anything. We want the real stuff. And so, yeah, this high resolution allows us to get the data to everyone in its pure raw form. Hmm. So when they feel it, they can feel the, the tiny little parts there. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget one of our collaborators. He's had blindness since he was born, Hobie Wedler. He has a PhD in physical organic chemistry from UC Davis. And the first time he felt noise, he freaked out. He was like, I've been hearing <laughs> about noise forever. And uh, it was really cool. So he, he actually was the one who pointed that out to us, how important that is. I mean, of course, we know it as scientists, but we take it for granted sometimes. <laughs> that is cool. Okay. Tell me how you actually make them. I say they are 3D printed, correct? Yeah. We are not um, gurus of 3D printing. We're experimental protein biochemists, and we make them with the regular Forms Lab 3D printer, commercially available. They're about 3500 5000 bucks. And we made them accidentally, actually. We started out with 3D imagery, making tiny little models. Some of them were edible. Some of them were made of dental resin. You could put them in your mouth. And we were doing 3D models. And then we got to the 2D graphics and 2D data, like in a book. And, and we thought that was going to be kind of boring. And so we started making these graphs. And the student, the undergraduate at Baylor, Juan Lopez, made the graphics so thin so they would print out quick and use less resin that they started glowing when we held them up to the light. And so we thought we had invented the lithophane, but it turns out the Chinese probably invented them in six or 700 AD using uh, thin porcelain. Hmm. 
I want to pick up on something interesting that you said. You said you put them in your mouth, or some people put them in their mouths. Why would you do that? Well, so we have 2D images. We make these little 2D tactile graphics, but we also have small little 3D tactile graphics. And it turns out your tongue, you know, it's a muscular hydrostat, sort of like an octopus arm, and it, it's your finest tactile sensor. The spatial acuity of your tongue's about half a millimeter. Your fingertips are about one millimeter. And your your lips are really good too. So and and it's and it's a hydrostat, so it's squishy. You can squish it into little binding pockets on a 3D model of a tiny protein or something. And so you can sense things a little bit better than you can with your fingers, or at least some people can. So we use all the tactile sensors, the fingers, the lips, the mouth. And then of course the mouth gives you the ability to encode information about the model with flavor and stuff like that. So we don't want to leave any tactile sensor behind. <laughs> that is really cool because I know, you know, you you can eat something and feel a little grain of sand even there. That's how sensitive your mouth is. Oh, yeah. Think about like a BlackBerry. That has kind of the same bulbar topology as a protein model, right? And, and yeah, you can feel that with your fingers. But when you pop that thing into your mouth, it's just a whole new world. And we've watched little kids with total blindness putting things in their mouth and sort of pausing and thinking about it a lot. So that's kind of how we got the idea of watching kids with blindness play around. My son's legally blind, so that's kind of how we got into this. Is that right? Yeah. My son was born with tumors in both of his eyes. So we've always sort of lived in this world of visual impairment. And um, even though we're regular biochemists, our work it has just kind of shadowed his development and, and his needs. Mm-hmm. I know your lab does other sorts of accessibility work too. What are what are some of the other techniques you're experimenting with? So the first part was yeah to make the data accessible, 2D and 3D data, and we feel like we've got that nailed down. We can make any data accessible to a person with blindness. So now we're moving into the lab to make all the experimental tools accessible, and we're sort of doing it one piece at a time. And we've started out with the most common analytical tool in the life sciences, uh, gel electrophoresis. So we've created this cool little uh, device that clamps onto a uh, gel electrophoresis box for proteins. And it allows people with blindness to uh, load gels, which if, if you're in biochemistry, you can do that all day. <laughs> so we, uh, it's cool. We, we brought in a bunch of kids from the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And we had them try to load the gels you know, inject their samples in with the tiny little pipettes. And of course it was impossible to do, but once we gave them this device, we call it a Zamponia because it looks like a pan flute. Once we gave it to them, they were able to load gels like total rock stars. They got beautiful data and uh, it was pretty cool to see. Did you actually have to make a device for them? Yeah, we did. A graduate student in the lab, Levi Garza, spent about four months designing it, 3D printing prototypes, tinkering with it. And um, he's got something that works beautifully. So we'll be publishing that probably next year. Hmm. That's cool. Uh, what about labels and things? Do they have Braille on them or some kind of touchy-feely stuff? Yep. You can use Braille. One of our undergraduate students in the lab, Noah Cook, he has total blindness. He likes to use these uh, shape labels. Triangles, circles, squares, hexagons, and he has his own little 
code in his notebook with a more descriptive explanation in Braille. But he likes sort of simple, explicit graphics for his test tubes. Yeah, how do the uh, how do the blind people in the lab help you make these better? I mean, did they come up with suggestions? You know, if you did this a little differently, I could feel it a little better. Oh, they totally do. We work with a bunch of people with blindness. Some of them have PhDs and were born with blindness. Some of them develop blindness later. Some of them are undergrads. And from the beginning, the design to the prototypes to the testing. They're always telling us what they want. And what's really cool is the the end product ends up helping everyone. I have 47-year-old eyes, so it's kind of hard for me to load gels now, even though I'm not technically visually impaired. But once we put this device on, it's super easy. So that's kind of one of the cool things about universal design, when you build something that, that can work for everyone. That is cool. I, you know, I, I mentioned Braille before. But I, I know a little bit about Braille, and I think it could be a little bit confusing, those little dots when you're talking about reading versus chemical nomenclature. Oh, you're exactly right. So first of all, only about 10% of people with blindness read Braille. So there is a, a Braille literacy challenge there. But you're right. A, a lone pair of electrons looks like, uh, I think it's B in Braille. And, uh, you know, Lewis dot structures have some sort of uh, overlap with Braille. So it it can get a little confusing. Tell me a little bit about the phrase assistive technologies. You say that many of the instruments we see in the lab are actually assistive technologies. What does that connote? Yeah, so a really famous chemist with blindness, Hobie Wedler, always liked to point out nobody can see atoms, right? Nobody can see individual molecules. They're below the diffraction limit of visible light. So as chemists, we're always making assistive technology to help us visualize or see things that we are never going to see with our eyes. So a synchrotron or an electron microscope or even an NMR machine or a mass spectrometer. These are really all forms of assistive technology, things we make to help us overcome our limitations in perceiving our world. So you know, as chemists, we're kind of used to flying blind, I guess you'd say, thinking about things we're never going to be able to see. And so, yeah, we're making assistive technology in the lab, like this little device that helps people with blindness load gels. But we're also surrounded by assistive technology, and we just don't always think of it that way. But that's really what it is. Do you think it's, it's, it's necessary to be completely independent in a lab? No. I don't think so. When when we're training these students with blindness to, to be researchers, to be able to test hypotheses experimentally, I don't think they need to be totally independent. I'm not totally independent in the lab. I'm a, I'm a tenured professor of biochemistry. I don't really do the experiments anymore. <laughs> the graduate students do. I analyze the data. I walk through the lab every day. I, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, I'm a scientist, but I'm not. And so we want to be able to train these students to be able to play their part, to be able to contribute, and to be able to test hypotheses, analyze data, and be part of a scientific team. Because that's, that's what science is now. We're all dependent on each other. Right. Now, you're experimenting and creating and pioneering these techniques. 
Does any of this, so to speak, leak out of your lab into other people's labs so they can do the same thing? It's starting to. I have a collaborator. Her name's Mona Mankara. And she's been on some of our lithophanes papers as a contributor, as a co-author. But I met her after we did the mouth models, these tiny little models that go in your mouth. And one day I was Zooming with her and I saw some tiny little models with dental floss attached to them. And they were clearly mouth models. And I said, Mona, are you actually putting the models in your mouth? She's like, yes, Brian, I love it. It's awesome. So uh, we haven't assessed how many people are using these tools, but we think it's leaking into other labs. <laughs> wow. But, and, you're, and, and because you're publishing research on this, other people are obviously paying attention. Oh, they're paying attention. I actually just got an email this morning from a scientist from China who wants to collaborate. So <laughs> you're right. We, we're publishing this work in the top journals, and, and um, it's really cool that the scientific community is, is supportive. Dr. Shaw, is chemistry better or worse suited to accessible research than other fields of science? Well, it's both. It's better and it's worse. Historically, it's been probably the most exclusive field and where people with disabilities or blindness are warned, stay out of the lab, it's too dangerous. And that's changing now. But it's also the best field for people with blindness because nobody can see atoms. Nobody can really see molecules. Uh, biochemistry, chemistry, a whole chunk of this field of science is creating assistive technology to help you, me, see things we can't see, whether it's a synchrotron or a X-ray crystal diffractor. So it's historically one of the worst offenders, but it's got a lot of potential uh, to be more inclusive. Do you think that there's any way that AI, which is getting into everything, AI could make chemistry or, or science more inclusive? Oh, sure. AI with machine vision, being able to wave your camera in front of something and basically identify it, whether it's text or a structure or some object, it's totally going to help out in the lab. A, a cool app now is Be My AI, which is um, allowing people with blindness to basically identify things around them using their phone and AI. So it's going to play a huge role, AI and robotics. So the, the future is bright. If you're a kid out there or a young person or a, an adult with blindness and you want to get in the lab, the future is a lot brighter than the past. Let me give you my blank check question. If you had a blank check and you, you wanted to spend it on uh, something that you really needed or to change the paradigm that you're working in, how would you use that money? You had a blank check. I would spend it growing what, what we're doing, scaling it up to include people with other disabilities or other diverse abilities, whether they be intellectual, psychological, physical, developmental. Our world's becoming more science-based. The economy's becoming more science-based. And I just don't want to see anyone left out. And people with different abilities, from people with blindness to people with mobility disorders to people with who are just slow learners, people with level two autism, level three autism. I don't want them left out. And we have to remake the lab from the tools in it to the way it's even designed 
to the way we behave in the lab. We have to rebuild it to make it accessible to all these different types of people because it's not working for them right now. And and so that's what I do with the money. <laughs> well, that would be money well spent, Dr. Shaw. I hope you get it. And I want to thank you for your work and for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Ira. Dr. Brian Shaw, Professor of Biochemistry at Baylor in Waco, Texas.